Oceans of Learning, the podcast celebrating our seas and Ireland's marine resource is presented by the Marine Institute. To find out more, go to marine.ie. I'm Finn van der Aert. Welcome to the Oceans of Learning podcast, celebrating our seas and having a look at the array of amazing marine resources just off our coast. For episode one, Our Ocean, Our Life, we're looking at marine biodiversity and how the ocean promotes our health and well-being. We have a fantastic lineup of speakers for you guys today. We have Dr. Aaron Lim from Green Rebel Marine in Cork, Dr. Debbie Pedrici from the Marine Institute in Galway, and Chabelle Regan from the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group. But first up, we have Dr. Eski Britton, eminent researcher, speaker, big wave surfer, and the author of just released the amazing new book, 50 Things to Do by the Sea. We will actually have some coveted copies of that to give away. So stay tuned to the end of the episode to find out more. But first of all, Isi, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. What a lovely celebration. <laughs> you, I always think your, your research um, sits in a very interesting place between, um, I guess, ocean health, but also human well-being. And I'm just really curious to know, how did you find that place, if that makes sense? Or how did that become your area of interest? Yeah, um, I yeah, I haven't had a kind of linear pathway into being, I suppose, a marine social scientist. And I've only recently kind of, there's only recently been the language to describe what I do, <laughs> where I sit between the more natural marine scientists and then the sort of social and human aspect. Um, I don't know, I think it came about by a combination of, you know, being was being a surfer as well I was so immersed in kind of the front lines of witnessing the changes um you kind of learn to pay attention in a really different way you're kind of making observations and noticing what other how other species are responding to changes as well and so you're feeling very much part of a bigger ecosystem rather than separate from it and yeah yeah and so then you're kind of bearing witness to change you know increasing storms flooding erosion pollution all of that's like part of the lived experience rather than feeling removed from the everyday and directly can directly impact us. So that, that was part of it. And then I think the turning point was going, like I, I went to university kind of late. I spent maybe three years traveling after um, I finished school, building a career as a pro surfer. And, uh, but I kind of wove it in with doing volunteer work around marine conservation and, you know, tropical coral reef ecology. And it was it was amazing. But I just felt at that time those projects were really removed from like the lived experiences of communities dependent on the natural ecosystems. who would also, you know, have this amazing collective wisdom for generations that was being completely untapped and unacknowledged. And then I felt any impact in terms of sustainability would be so short lived if there wasn't the integration of the human dimension. And then even say, you know, with fisheries, um, fishery science, which I was involved with too, as part of my kind of PhD, it was, it's not about managing fish, it's about <laughs> managing people, you know, so <laughs> uh, that's how I ended up with that aspect. And then increasingly, it was coming almost back to source of, you know, intuitively knowing and feeling the, the healing and restorative benefits of the sea my whole life for myself personally. And then seeing the kind of transformative aspect it can have for different people. Um, and this kind of in the last I suppose, five, 10 years, more of a surge around ocean therapy and things like that. And people being called back to the sea um, and water as a place of healing 
which of course, you know, as long as there, there, there's been humans, there's been that kind of connection as well with water, but it's lovely that there's this kind of reawakening happening. And so that's where I sit now, I suppose, between looking at the link between ocean health and human health. Oh, yeah. And it's, it's, it's really cool to see it. Like, um, I think even what you said there about um, kind of looking at communities where they've had a connection with the ocean for a really, really long time. And yet we're kind of, you often feel like scientists now are coming in and like telling them how to do something when they've kind of had this knowledge for a much longer time and maybe have a better way to manage it and stuff themselves as well. What fascinates me are trying to, I suppose, there's these lost connections. So trying to, like, how do we reconnect um, and restore a relationship with uh, like the ocean, sea and coast in a healthy way. And I'm always interested in Ireland, how that's evolving as an island nation and our relationship with the sea over generations and historically. And, and I just think there's so much, for example, in the Irish language and in Gaelic, something I know Moncon McGann has done an amazing job of collecting these words um, that really speak to like the intimacy we have with place and that ecological understanding and the richness of it uh, that can also be lost. Um, you know, it's interesting, there's no real word for landscape in, in the Arabosis is kind of dukas, which is more akin to belonging to, like belonging to a place, belonging to the sea, belonging to the mountain. Um, so, uh, yeah, I think there's there's that there to draw upon as, as we move forward. And there's definitely like so many new narratives coming about about our relationship with the sea that are really exciting, especially over this last year. Yeah, completely. And and like, I think it's an interesting one. Um, like I know for myself, even just from uh, studying seaweeds that that we kind of had this, it, it, we're nearly reconnecting to things we've lost. Like there was a history of people in Ireland eating seaweed, using seaweed for fertilizer. Maybe you're doing this on the farm as well. I don't know. Um, and, and now it's like we're learning it again. So it's really cool that you're kind of in the forefront of that too, which is nice. So you see, obviously you work on kind of many different facets to do with the marine environment whether it's surfing or in your research I'm just really curious to know like what would um what would your day like or what, what would a project look like when you're when you're working on something in particular what, what's actually going on for you in terms of your work yeah I think it's one of the exciting things about working in the marine space is that you're in an environment that's uh you know crosses so many boundaries so you work with people in lots of different places uh, with lots of different backgrounds it's really interdisciplinary right now I'm, I'm working um on a Erasmus Plus funded project called Inclusive. So with uh, seven different kind of NGOs and another research institute in Portugal, across like five countries in Europe. Um, and I partner with, I work really closely with Liquid Therapy, um, the like not nonprofit based in Donegal, do a lot of ocean therapy, especially with, with young people. Um, so it's, yeah, it's just really exciting getting to do that kind of more applied research to you know, how to restore the ocean as a more inclusive and accessible space. So inclusive is looking at, um, I suppose, methods and best practices around um, for people with physical disabilities or sensory impairments who, who want to access and experience surfing. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's, it's pretty cool. <laughs> <laughs> really cool project. Yeah. And, uh, and speaking of really cool projects, you've just released a book. <laughs> can you yes, can you tell yeah. us a little bit about your book how it came about a little bit about what it is about as well yeah it's called 50 things to do by the sea so it's kind of it's kind of on the title um but I wrote it I wrote it last summer after I finished up my contract at NUI Galway on uh, another project called Sophie on oceans and human health uh which was amazing but really intense um and it was a lovely shift to write in a really like fun, creative and accessible way. 
the understanding of the, the ocean's influence on us and our influence on it. So a lot of the book is about, I suppose the aim is to connect people with the ocean in a more conscious sort of mindful way. Um, and also just showing the links, especially for health and well-being, how much we can benefit, how we can do different activities to kind of connect more with it. Um, and also then things we can do for the ocean. So there's just amazing things happening around citizen science and and then revisiting like old childhood activities I would have done um yeah so it's a, it's a whole mix but it's really about I think for me about fostering this culture of care and reciprocity so you know receiving so much of the benefit from the ocean and then wanting to give give back and how to do that nice. so it's like fostering a sense of stewardship in people yeah Very good. yeah and and is it um is it uh, directed towards a particular age group is it for everybody yeah it's it's for everyone like there's lovely activities sort of around breathing exercises and mindfulness and then creative ones too like around photography and sketching and um then of course beach combing rock pulling you know all of the sustainable seaweed harvesting yeah. even having picnics and sandcastles so the, the whole lot's in there so definitely really fun for families and kids um I think it would be interesting even if you're already really um engaged with the sea and um but also if you're completely unfamiliar with it it's a lovely way I suppose to learn how to you know there's one section in the book that's all about kind of how to read the sea so around waves and tides and, and currents and things like that so it's about yeah building up a, I suppose a more um well a deeper right, relationship course, yeah. yeah I think it's I think yeah. it's really cool that you've added that as well because like obviously we've seen in this last year with just the explosion of sea swimming um around our coast so, so it's really cool that you've added a piece even just learning how to read the ocean because as people are getting in, but maybe haven't got that much experience with it before, that's obviously a great thing for them for their safety as well. Yeah, and just acknowledging that you're, yeah, you're in an unfamiliar environment and just having that kind of, well, respect in one level, but just that, you, yeah, recognizing that you're, you're, when you enter into the sea, you're in a very different world uh, to what we're used to and you're connecting to something so much bigger than you. Um, so yeah, it's, it's just a lovely way to sort of start to make that a bit more familiar for people. That's really cool. And I'm um, just curious as well. So obviously the year that's in it, we won't talk about it too much, but um, are there particular, obviously we know you surf and everything like that, but there are there kind of like particular ways you like to engage with the ocean that just promote your own health and well-being, especially in this kind of last year? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I think like when we're in nature, I feel like we respond rather than react and, and water really facilitates that really embodied way of, of being fully present uh especially our cold water here in Ireland because <laughs> it's like you know we just know where else your mind is going to be when all like 30 trillion cells are being like stimulated and woken up <laughs> 25 cups <laughs> of coffee in the sea yeah yeah so yeah forget the coffee effect um yeah and I think what what the other thing that's nice I suppose in the book too it was about how to make it as accessible as possible so whether you know whether you just want to be by it or dip your toe in it or get fully immersed there's 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 something for everyone but there's also a benefit to be had even before we we get in the sea which is I think really important to acknowledge so there's you know there's an activity in it that I love uh, called a sit spot so and I definitely found I found a beautiful kind of sit spot during the, like the first lockdown it was just down the road from where we lived and I had completely I hadn't noticed it before because I hadn't gone exploring that close to home so I was kind of it was forced on me and it's just magic this little cove you can't see from the road and a sit spot is by just going to a place um 
outside in nature and of course if you're by the sea you're just taking in all the benefit the sea has to offer which is the you know how multi-sensory it is we know even like the color the sounds the smells all have an effect on our mood and well-being and the sit spot is simply just about taking that moment to pause and be still and just notice um um what's going on around you and it's lovely the more you go to the same spot over time uh just the deeper that connection becomes and and the more you kind of notice so it's almost like fine honing that art of paying attention you know and uh, um i find it really grounding um especially when it, you feel kind of yeah uh often feeling like the ground's gone from beneath our feet that's a really nice way just to like reconnect yeah. it's nearly like the um the the yogic uh idea of like you know how many th- what what can you see what can you feel what can you taste what can you smell yeah it's really cool exactly yeah and I'd be, the sea just amplifies all that and makes it just much more effortless to to pay attention to those things and uh all of that has a has a benefit on us you know, physically and and psychologically and so that that's been like the body of my research for the this last while too is kind of drilling into like the why water <laughs> that's a great yeah um easy that's really yeah. cool i hope that's that's gonna be a nice takeaway for the listeners to uh to find your sit spot is that what you called it yeah, yeah i love it yeah, Brilliant. yeah um well so kind of uh on on the idea of of something that they can can take home is there uh maybe one thing that you could share with the listeners that they could do start doing now even um that would have a bit of a more positive impact on our oceans yeah it's i i would just love to see the ocean celebrated and appreciate it for its influence on kind of every aspect of our lives anywhere we are on the planet there's this notion that you have to be an ocean lover or live on the coast or by the sea to have a connection or any benefit from it um so yeah a couple of things and then you know we're kind of the challenges we're facing are also interconnected. You, when we talk about the climate crisis and the need for climate action, it, we're also talking about uh, ocean action. <laughs> so that anything you do, <laughs> for example, that helps reduce your carbon footprint or reduces your waste, nearly all of our waste and pollution ultimately will end up in, in the sea in some shape or form. Um, and, you know, we've kind of left our, our mark as humans on, on every every part of the ocean, its entire column, right to the deepest part of the seafloor, which is just incredible, not to mention ch- changing the very chemistry of, like, you know, entire body of the global ocean. Uh, so like, there's, there's no shortage of things we can be doing and, and doing now. Um, I think the most important things are, and it, I, you know, I talk about them in the book, um, big, big and small, anything that helps cultivate just the greater kind of consciousness, conscious awareness of our actions and just slowing that down a pace is going to benefit. So in terms of the choices we make all have an impact on the ocean. Um, and, but I also think a community building part is really, really important right now. So because it's going to take all of us <laughs> for the challenges we face. And I'm really I think that's something I've been really excited to see is more people coming together around a shared connection with the ocean, be that, you know, finding a local sea swimming group or creating a like a coastal care 
group with clean coasts and are doing organized beach cleans, uh, getting involved in like habitat restoration. And so I'd say like, you know, do your homework, find an organization that's doing work that um, really speaks to you and, and see how you can get involved. Um, because yeah, doing it alone, it's just, it's not going to work. Uh, and if it's not, if, you, if it's not, if there isn't something in your area, think about starting something up. Um, yeah so that we can be voices and champions for what the ocean needs and it, that really needs to be heard at the highest levels so the more we can kind of come together the better yeah, fostering connection I love it and um, Iski thank you so much for joining us on the podcast I really appreciate it and guys remember that her book is just out 50 things to do by the sea and if you stick around to the end we also have a copy or two to give away to find out more thank you so much for Iski yay thank you <laughs> So guys, Iski shared some fantastic wisdom with us there on how the ocean can promote our health and well-being. We're going to change tack a little bit now. We're going to be looking at marine biodiversity, habitat mapping, ecosystems management. I'm joined with Dr. Aaron Lim from Green Rebel Marine in Cork, Dr. Debbie Padrici from the Marine Institute in Galway, and Chabelle Regan from the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group. Chabelle, I feel like when we look at the oceans around us we hear a lot about seals and dolphins and really not much else just fungi himself could you tell me a little bit more about the biodiversity you're seeing off the Irish coast yeah so thanks Finn so Ireland is actually one of the best places in the world to see whales and dolphins we have huge biodiversity we actually have 25 different species of whales dolphins and porpoises uh, found in Irish waters to date so you know when people think fungi or you know uh, Nemo in Galway or all these kind of they're normally uh, bottlenose dolphins and that's one species that we have but there are loads of other there's harbour porpoise which is the the smallest uh, coastal dolphin kind of we have there's they're tiny and we also have minke whales um, and they have baleen like this so there's there's even even from the types there's huge diversity we have toothed whales we also have baleen whales so baleen are kind of filter feeders and their teeth is made actually from the same material as your hair and nails it's super weird and people think god they have hairy teeth but, but it's used to catch tiny uh, fish and krill and then we also have um, like large whales like we have fin whales we have blue whales we have sperm whales um, this is a sperm whale tooth, um, it's the size of my face, if anybody, you know, <laughs> if there's any ambiguity of how big a sperm whale are, their teeth can be the size of your head. Um, yeah, and we've got just massive biodiversity. We've got loads of different types of habitats in Ireland. So there's coastal waters. We, we also have deep um, sea canyons as well, which are great for beaked whales, these really elusive um, species that, you know, if you're just... Um, watching from land you you would be unlikely to see a beaked whale but they're all here nonetheless and they need protection so and um, what ones maybe if anyone is watching from the coast is there particular parts of Ireland where you are most likely to see particular species of whales or dolphins or particular species that maybe are easier to spot yeah so um we always say no matter we're an island nation here in Ireland so no matter where you are really um you can see whales and dolphins if you look long enough um, but there are definitely some hotspots that are maybe there's more activity. So the likes of uh, West Cork are really great. Kerry, uh, Mayo at the moment is having um, great sightings. 
um, anywhere around there. And the kind of the most frequently cited would be the smallest baleen whale that I mentioned, the minke whale. Um, we're, getting, we're getting sightings of humpbacks at the moment, and those can be seen from land. So these are really charismatic um, whale that, you know, will put on a show and you can see them from land from Cork now at the moment from Kerry. And um, we'll be able to see them in a few months again from Clare. And um, so it's brilliant, yeah. And then you have the regular kind of, we have dolphins as well. So the bottlenose that I was saying, and um, that's the same species that people would be familiar with fungi um, and Nemo, all of those resident dolphins. And then harbour porpoises are very frequently seen around Dublin and, and Wicklow and stuff. So it doesn't really matter where you are in Ireland. There's, there's marine mammals um, all over the coast. And actually, a question I got quite a few times, obviously, with the, the recent press of Dolphy, of uh, Fungi and where is he, is, um, so obviously he's actually, while he's very famous, he's he's not the only solitary dolphin around the coast. Is uh, Could you tell us anything maybe about that behaviour? We're, we're obviously so used to hearing about them being in pods. Yeah, exactly. So the regular kind of dolphin behaviour, you know, they live in intricate family groups. And so it's quite unusual when we get these solitary dolphins. And there's a lot of kind of speculation about where they come from. Why do they seek out human contact? Because they definitely do. And it's all really kind of theory. We don't really know. I mean, there's some speculation that maybe they were captive dolphins or maybe they're post-reproductive. Um, like Fungi was an adult male when, when he was first recorded in, in Dingle. So there's kind of thinking that maybe he was post-reproductive and was kicked out of his group because he was no good. That's a tough um, one. So now, you know, we don't, we don't really know. There's loads yeah. of, of different options, really. Um, but yeah, there's loads of, of solitary dolphins. Um, obviously, Fungi, it's not looking great. Uh, he's a very old male and it's, it's very likely that he's, he's passed away. Um, no, yeah, no. Okay, cool. That's that's very interesting. And actually, um, you you mentioned habitat mapping a little bit there. Um, Aaron, obviously you've worked kind of extensively in that space. I think people hear about habitats or habitat mapping, but what does that actually entail? Well, firstly, we we have this unnaturally large resource offshore Ireland. It's about nine times the, the size of the landmass of Ireland itself. And all dotted along our coast, we have plenty of habitats and from my own background and I suppose yourself as well Finn there are plenty of cold water coral habitats and they exist there's loads of different types but habitat mapping itself is can be broken into various different parts firstly mapping where the habitats are mapping the types of habitats they are themselves different parts of the habitat you could map a particular species that makes up that habitat or different physical components so there are lots of different parts I suppose to habitat mapping Myself and Aaron have been on a few cruises together and I have a good memory of um, you're, you're always so I'm obviously in the biological side. And so a lot of times when I look at the computer programs you're using, they terrify me. But um, <laughs> uh, I do remember you had one that was kind of like knitting pictures together of um, cold water coral reefs. Yeah, that was um, something I started uh, at the start of my PhD. It was 2D vi video mosaic. And of course, since then, things have changed it's now 3d structure for motion and we yeah essentially we take images from remotely operated vehicles um in my case it was of coral reefs or submarine canyons we take lots of images with the marine institute's holland one rov um, we'd synchronize the images with some navigation so the position for where the rov is and we'd essentially stitch them together and that produces almost like a google earth image where you can walk around 
the, the habitats. And we're essentially taking the habitat and bringing it back to the lab in a digital space. And we've recently been working with an artist, funny enough, who's been printing these out, like 3D printing them. So you can actually see them now back in, in your hand. It's kind of a cool, cool little thing. Sorry, is it possible um, for, you know, when you're describing these like Google Maps type thing, is there an interface that, you know, the general public can look at these and, and see them and, and access those kind of 3D images? Like, is it on Ireland's digital, digital ocean or anywhere like um, that? A lot of these now are kind of just created, I suppose, they're still in research space. And um, there are platforms that you can upload them to. Infomar, for example, put some of their little 3D models online. Um, we've created some full scale 3D models now of coral reefs. And um, we're kind of having issues, I suppose. They're so large, it's, uh, the information is so detailed, it's hard to put them online. Uh, but we can make them publicly available to people who are interested. You can open them in a PDF and simply rotate the PDF around. Um, or we can make them in kind of public friendly formats as well, or like little fly throughs. So I'm happy to, to chat to anyone who's interested in that. And, and actually that kind of leads on to the next thing I was gonna ask you about. It was just, um, so, so obviously you've been creating these pieces and, and what kind of applications, like what have, what have other researchers been using them for? Or is it even like, has that even started yet, if that makes sense? Yeah, it's been, and it's kind of been out there for, for a number of years now. Um, I originally started using them myself to look at reefs at a full reef scale at this resolution, because normally you're looking at one meter size pixels, which is still extremely good, but we're now looking at millimeter to centimeter scale pixels. So you can map the individual bits of coral across a reef. Um, and we did that first in 2017. Well, the research was in 2017, but the actual data was from 2011. And we repeated it again a number of years later to look at how the reefs had changed over a four year period. Uh, and we did notice some changes on the reef. And only just last year, we went back and repeated that. And we, we now have a 10 year record. And we put down some monitoring stations, which are still currently out there due to be collected this year. So we're looking at how reefs change and how they respond to things like increasing currents. So these deep water reefs, I suppose, are susceptible to change, just like shallow water reefs, as you well know. And um, dare I ask, good changes, bad changes? What are you seeing at the moment? Um, we're, we're seeing that they are susceptible to changes. There are benefits. There are, I suppose, cons as well. Obviously, there's increased amounts of coral rubble around the reefs, which and we also see higher current speeds. And we think the higher current speeds are maybe eroding some of the coral, so breaking it off. But we also see some areas where the coral seems to like these higher current speeds as well. So still a little bit of working on to, to, to get to the bottom of that, but um, some pros and some cons. It's not all bad news. We were talking a little bit about biodiversity and I just wonder, is, are they, I don't know much about corals myself, so are there, do we have huge diversity in Ireland? Uh, do some species favour the strong currents and then others, do you know, are you seeing one species becoming more dominant in change or? Yeah, so another study we had, well, a, co a couple of years ago, we saw that there's kind of these different chains of reefs and they have different characters when you compare different areas. Some have these smaller polyps and they're more susceptible to when there's more sediment or more disturbance in the area because they get clogged up. But we actually found that one of these particular species was starting to decline on a reef. Um, and that, that was also something we found back in 2015. Um, and we're still, again, we have landers down there now, or these monitoring stations that we call the little monsters. 
um, that are actually monitoring the changes in these habitats. So we should have more information about that, but we do have a rock star, I suppose, coral called Lophelia prochusa, which I'm sure Finn can tell you all about. Um, but that's like, it's the one everyone seems to know. It's like the, the famous coral and we have plenty of it here. Um, and so obviously we are talking a little bit about ecosystems and stuff here. So Debbie, you've got a connection to ecosystems management. Could you tell us a little bit more about what you do? Absolutely. So um, I work in the Marine Institute, um, which is links to, to both Chabelle's and, and Aaron's work. Um, we're involved with the vessels and Infomar for doing the deep sea mapping. And um, the IWDG often comes out on many of our surveys, doing survey work there as well. And I actually volunteered for the IWDG for years as well in my in a previous life. Um, but my role in the Institute is I am part of the Ecosystems Approach to Fisheries Management team. So we are tasked with looking at the wider um, impacts and associations of fisheries and their interactions and the ecosystems in general. And my specific job at the moment is looking at something called integrated ecosystem assessment. So the idea is to look at all of the parts of the ecosystem. So looking at your shallow littoral habitats out to your deep canyon habitats and everything in between, looking at all of your fish species, elasmobranchs down to your plankton species. So all of the links in the chain right up to your top predators like your whales and your dolphins. And then looking at the actual uh, oceanographic potential physical impacts as well and benthic impacts and habitats. Um, but then looking at the wide range of pressures that are affecting all of these ecosystems and the different sectors or parts of society that are causing those pressures. So it's pretty complex. The assessments that we're looking at at the moment have about 16 different sectors that we're looking at. I think it's 23, 24 different pressures and 28 parts of the ecosystem are the different categories that we're looking at. So there's thousands of potential interactions there and we're trying to see where are the top pressures coming from, where are the top risks, because obviously, unfortunately, our resources are limited, so we can't manage everything all the time, and we have to make decisions about where we plow in our resources, so we try to identify the areas that are at most And at I risk. guess, um, just for any of our listeners, um, obviously, if you, if you haven't got a scientific background or you're quite curious about all these different ecosystems, always a, a good way to tie it back, as I remember first showing people kind of images of... Um, deep sea stuff we're looking at actually from cruises with Aaron and, uh, and they'd be kind of like well how does that affect me or you know how that's so far away from us and you're like well actually you know some of the commercial fish species that you're eating their nursing grounds are, are actually those cold water coral reefs that are you know what maybe 2,000 meters down um, so it does kind of all tie in together. I think a big part of, of us as a, as a society, <laughs> excuse me, um, particularly an island nation like ourselves, we have a terrible habit of looking at the sea as the surface and not thinking about what's below it. And it is very complex. We have all sorts of habitats. You know, we have rocky reefy habitats in, you know, you, you have rocky shores, you have sandy shores, and the same continues out for all depths. That's why we have, you know, these coral rocky habitats and we have sandy habitats. We have everything going on at all different depths of the ocean. And we have canyons that go down thousands of meters, but you also have intense biodiversity on your rocky local shore that you can go and, you know, see all sorts of enemies and things there and engage in them there. Um, no, yeah, completely. And I think I would totally invite people to go and have a look as well. Was it called the, the real map of Ireland where you can um, kind of see 
just that amazing landscape of our kind of um, offshore environment where you're looking at all these like reefs and canyons and yeah, it, it looks like what you're expecting to see on land. It's not just this kind of flat or this old plane that drops off and goes on forever. If you look at the, the real map of Ireland and our seascape, we're actually one of the largest countries in Europe when you take that into account. Um, so, yeah, yeah. So, we're not so, a small you know, player. when people are thinking, what can the ocean, I'm not connected to the ocean, what can the ocean do? To, it's one of our biggest resources. It's a huge resource and we have a huge impact on it and we interact with it in many ways that we don't even realize, you know, we have obvious things like, you know, our tourism, we love to go to beaches for our holidays, we love to go visit fishing villages because they're quaint, but we also eat the produce that, that they create. But we also have indirect things like, you know, our wastewater and our, our waste uh, cycles in general and our land based industry, you know, they have huge outputs into our marine environment that we don't always think about. So it's really important that when we do think about, you know, these top sectors and, and pressures and things that are going on, we think about the wider system because there's lots of things that are happening and when they interact, especially in the context of climate change, that's a lot going on for our oceans to be dealing with and we gain so much from them, they provide us with a lot of ecosystem services. So it's important for us to remember we can't just keep taking, we have to, you know, protect and give a little bit too. Debbie, can I just, sorry, Finn, can I just add to that actually, if you don't mind? Um, I, I do think a lot of that and just going along with what you said is out of sight, out of mind. You know, people, they just see the surface. They don't think what's beneath it. And it's not until you go down there and see what's actually there. You're like, oh, wow, this is actually completely different to the last 10 meters that I saw, let alone back in Ireland. And one example I have of the impacts that we'd have on our ocean would be when we did, we discovered a, a coral reef a couple of years ago called the Piddington Mound, which is like quite close to myself. And it was the first time we'd ever seen it, but yet it was already covered with litter. There was litter all over it. So we'd only discovered something that we'd already had an impact on. And that kind of just, is, it's a bit sobering to think of it that way. And that's one of the things that we can see as opposed to the things that we can't see. You know, there's lots of chemicals and contaminants and things potentially that way. And, you know, temperature changes and stuff, you know, they're, they're not as readily observable. And if we haven't been measuring things there before, we don't know what the changes are since. So, yeah. Yeah, completely. The contaminants is a really good point, actually, because from a whale and dolphin point of view, like, you know, everyone likes to go out whale watching and seeing these magnificent creatures, but they're actually the top of the food chain. So we like to, they're a sentinel species, um, which is basically an indicator species. So if you monitor whales and dolphins, they give a good kind of overall view of what's happening in the rest of the system. And the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group in connection with GMIT, you're working at, um, with a PhD student there, Moira Schlingerman, who does contaminant studies um, on blubber and she's finding huge amounts of you know heavy metals um, PCBs and um, contaminants and stuff in these live animals so they're taking biopsy samples which is just a small piece of skin and blubber um, and getting huge data from it but even though they are live and they seem like they're you know they're feeding they're breeding relatively well they still have these heavy contaminant burdens um, you know, that will actually affect the population over time. It'll reduce their, um, you know, their um, calving rate and their calf survivability as well. So, yeah, the impacts that we can't see are kind of the silent killers, really. And the, the kind of contaminants that you would be seeing, say, in that blubber, like, is that kind of like industrial byproduct? Is it particular heavy metals or? Yeah, so a lot of it could be runoff um, from from land. Um, 
some of the let's say pesticides and organic yeah a lot of those have been banned now but they're long lasting so they're still in the environment they take a really long time to break down and that's quite dangerous so even though we might not even be using some of these chemicals and materials anymore they're still widely in the environment so they they last a really long time but another thing Aaron mentioned about the uh, litter and the curls and and plastics so when plastic breaks down it it never really goes away it turns into microplastics and then microplastics and chemicals can leach out of these plastics as well as they're being broken down by wave and, and wind energy you know action um and that those chemicals have to go somewhere and basically they're absorbed um, by all the, the lower food chains so the, the plankton then it's eaten by the larger fish and the larger fish again and then eventually the whales and dolphins will eat it or humans will also eat them you know when we're eating fish sometimes we're taking in these toxins that also the whales and dolphins are so yeah it's kind of it's called bio um, accumulation and biomagnification so all these chemicals build up um, and then it's left at the top of the, the food chain. Yeah, because I guess we're even though we aren't technically a marine species, we are sitting at the top of the food web with them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So you know, when you when you think, just think about that. If it's affecting the sentinel species like the the seabirds and the whales and dolphins, chances are we're eating a lot of the same things, and it'll also affect us. So if there's any doubts of how we're connected, just you know. I have one more question for you. Um, so for our listeners, just something that they could maybe get involved in now. Maybe each of you like a top tip of what they can do to kind of help our oceans right now? Uh, Aaron, we'll start with you. Yeah, I, I, I have been asked this question a few times before, and I definitely think the best thing you can do is to educate yourself. Um, don't rely on going to, to, chatting to chatting to friends and then you come up with your own theories, which is great, but you should actually do your own research and um, contact, uh, get in contact with experts in the field and ask them what they're actually doing, look for their latest research. Research is what guides these TV shows that sometimes have spins on them. So go to the direct source and even speak to the, the authors of those papers. Debbie, what about yourself? Yeah, I would echo what Aaron said. I think, um, you know, educating yourself is, is a huge thing, but I would also add maybe to educate yourself specifically in what's, you know, well, either your interest area or your local area. I think getting involved in, in what's on your doorstep is important. And one of the key ways to do that is to get out and see what's going on. So like you mentioned earlier, Finn, you know, go out and do some rock pooling, see what's going on on your own seashore, or, you know, go surfing if that's your thing, or go look at the whales and dolphins either from a headland or a boat. There's lots of opportunities. And again, just to echo what Aaron said, you know, with the likes of Twitter these days, scientists have never been more accessible. Um, there is an awful lot of misinformation out there, but it's easy enough to get to real information if you want it. And usually, you know, we're nice, normal people, the vast majority of us. And if you ask us a question, as you can see, we love to talk about it. So do, don't be afraid to, to ask your local friendly scientist about their area of interest. They'll only be too delighted to tell you all about it. Uh, that is absolutely true. And um, Chevelle, what about yourself? Yeah, I suppose just to drive it home, I'm, I'm going to really echo uh, Aaron and Debbie and say, get engaged, get involved. Um, the only thing I can add are some practical tools to do that. Um, so at the moment, there's loads going on for what Debbie was saying about, you know, get out rock pooling, explore your shore. Um, the Biodiversity Data Centre have a great app um, that can help you identify things and you can upload your records. So it's really good to, you know, get fully engaged and you're, you're submitting data yourself, you're a citizen science 
uh, scientist. And the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group, we're releasing our app on the 22nd uh, of May. So you can submit sightings there, get involved too. Um, and also a huge process that's going on um, in Ireland at the moment is the marine um, protected areas, public consultation with the government. And I would urge everyone as much as possible to really get informed about this process, as well as the marine spatial planning um, and take part in these public consultations because once they're over, it will influence legislation and there's very little we're gonna be able to do after that. So we need to push um, the government, hold them accountable for what they're going to do and say. And there's a great, um, on gov.ie, there's um, a, questionnaire kind of like a survey that you can take that'll help you get engaged in that process so please do it's running for another two months um take part in that because this this is going to inform our conservation and policy um for the next several years so now's the time if i can make one more plug um what i i might suggest is for people to make uh as a first step to getting out there Everybody has a phone and you can look at Ireland's um, marine territory, the real map of Ireland that we were talking about earlier on through Ireland's Marine Atlas. And um, so it's atlas.marine.ie. Uh, and so everybody can have a look at that and it maps out lots of our different, um, not just pressures and things like that, but also species distributions in, in the marine environment. So you can start to get an idea of what's out there. So it can be a really great resource. Thank you so much. Those are some absolutely fantastic tips. I really, really appreciate you sharing those. Debbie, Aaron, Chabelle, thank you so much for coming on Oceans of Learning today. Brilliant chat. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you so much for listening. Some absolutely fantastic tips there from our guests. Things that you can try out definitely for yourself at home. If you want to find out how to win one of our three copies of Eastly Book, just head over to my Instagram, saltwaterstories.me and you'll see all the details for the competitions there. Tune in next week for our next episode, Our Ocean, Our Livelihood. And you can find us anywhere you get your podcasts, Apple, Google, Spotify, rate, review, subscribe. I'm Finn van der Aar. Thanks so much for joining me. Oceans of Learning, the podcast celebrating our seas and Ireland's marine resource is presented by the Marine Institute. To find out more, go to marine.ie.